Welcome to the Red Life Podcast, a podcast about living as a socialist in this world. I'm your host, Kieran Fatima, here with my co-host, Moxie. If you like what you hear and want some bonus content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about the global housing crisis, in particular how it affects Canada and Toronto. So globally, housing has been transformed by the capital markets and the financial system of capitalism. Known as the financialization of housing, this phenomenon occurs when housing is treated as a commodity or a vehicle for wealth and investment and profits rather than a social good for people or as a human right of people. This capitalist system results in over 100 million homeless and at least one and a half billion people living in inadequate housing around the world. During the COVID-19 crisis, this housing crisis, especially in capitalist societies, has been exposed to a great extent. With billions of people out of work, millions being forced to choose between paying rent or buying food, rent strikes are being organized in many cities and towns, in particular in the U.S. and Canada. In the U.S., around 30 to 40 million people could be at risk of eviction by the end of 2020. Four times the amount of people as the Great Recession in 2008 are living in housing insecure situations. And this number does not include mortgage arrears, just renters unable to pay their rent. So the eviction crisis in the U.S. represents about 10% of the population. Moxie, you have some numbers for Canada? I do. That's alarming. And in Canada, it's just as alarming. The housing crisis in Canada has been pretty bad pre-COVID for especially in the last like three to five years. On average, pre-COVID, at least 235,000 people experience homelessness in any given year and over 35,000 people on any given night. The numbers of people who are unemployed since COVID hit in Canada are higher than the Great Depression, just like you mentioned about the U.S. In March, the start of COVID lockdowns in Canada, 44% of Canadians reported a job loss. That's a lot of people making it, you know, making it hard to, to pay the rent. The expected rates of homelessness during COVID in Canada are alarming. In Canada, it's estimated that one in four renters One in four could be at risk of losing their housing or are worried about this. The population in Canada is just 37.59 million. And the stats from 2015 state that close to 35% of people in Canada are renters. That's a lot of people at risk for eviction. So narrowing it down to Toronto, which is the epicenter of homelessness and the homelessness crisis in Canada, pre-COVID-19, 47% of Toronto households are renters, and that number has been steadily growing each year. So pre-COVID again, close to 10,000 people each night in Toronto are sleeping rough. That means sleeping outside or in shelters or in very inadequate spaces. The housing crisis has been beyond critical in Toronto and Canada and globally for that matter for many, many years. In April, An estimated 260,000 people could not pay their rent in Toronto. The Toronto Foundation, which is a policy think tank, they stated even if only a small portion of this 260,000 people were evicted, that represents a massive increase in the existing homeless population, which is already bursting at the seams. The entire homeless shelter system in Toronto has a capacity of seven to 8,000 people and typically operates already pre-COVID at 98 to 99% capacity. So basically, they're full almost every single night. So with these numbers, Kieran, it's no wonder why so many people are worried about experiencing homelessness. And the people who are experiencing homelessness are taken to setting up encampments throughout the city of Toronto, for instance, which our guests are going to talk about today. And folks are organizing to fight to make sure that they're not evicted during COVID. No COVID evictions. So today we're going to talk about rent strike and homeless encampments with our guests. Kieran, did you want to introduce our guests for us, please? We have with us two comrades who have been working with Encampment Support Network and with various eviction 
resistance groups. We have Aliza Kassam and Ali Khan Pabani. Please introduce yourself and say hi. Hi there, my name is Aliza and I live in Parkdale and I'm really excited to be on your show. I love it um, and thanks for having us. I'm Ali Khan Pabani, also live in Parkdale. Yeah, very excited to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Really great to have you guys. Welcome. So you, I know you guys are doing a lot of work in Parkdale and in the surrounding community, but for our listeners, could you just start with a little bit of background as to what is a rent strike and how does it work? Absolutely. So a rent strike is just like it sounds. It's just tenants withholding their rent and also having a set of demands for the landlord. So for example, in our rent strike that we're currently holding, our demand is to cancel rent arrears over COVID and that there are no COVID evictions. I think that one misperception about landlords is that um, they are always like a person or, you know, that kind of thing. But the trends that we're seeing on the ground and especially in uh, here in so-called Canada is that more and more units are being um, accumulated by these these entities called REITs or real estate investment trusts. And what they are, these big like faceless corporations that are made up of shareholders. And um, what they do is they'll often hire large management companies to take care of the properties. And so this accountability tends to fade away over time. And a lot of tenants struggle with, you know, actually speaking to the landlord directly. And many tenants will be confused as to who to actually speak to because the the landlord, quote unquote, landlord, which is, again, a faceless corporation, will insert this large management company in between themselves and the tenants as a way to avoid really dealing with uh, that relationship in a meaningful way. So the rent mm-hmm. spread exposes this truth about who landlords actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you guys get involved in uh, rent strikes and, and, and in uh, organizing around tenant rights? So it started for us in 2017 with the Metcap rent strike. And uh, what Metcap was doing at that time was an above guideline rent increase, which is an AGI. So there, because of capital expenditures, such as putting in a new roof or parking spaces or that kind of thing, a really big, heavy investment, they are allowed to go above the guideline of the yearly regulated increase that's allowed that's based off of inflation. So that was a big struggle for a lot of our neighbors and for ourselves. So uh, we... And uh, can I just interrupt there for a second? Metcap, can you just explain really quick what who Metcap is? Metcap is an extremely large management company that manages buildings all across Canada. So they're, okay. they're very huge. And they're Thank also... You. Sorry, Metcap is a bit confusing as well because they are also an entity that owns property as a landlord. Talking about what I was saying earlier, like they're, the lines between these things are kind of foggy sometimes. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. for sure. Okay, thank you for that. So you guys organized in 2017 around these issues? Absolutely. So we organized around the above guideline rent increase, but also it was a bunch of buildings within Parkdale that organized and they didn't necessarily have an AGI. so. They were fighting more for repairs um, and also Mm -hmm. tax issues as well. So uh, it was just a range of things. We were able to, we started in our building, but we were able to spread it throughout all Metcap buildings within Parkdale. And then, um, and it caused such a big scene that they actually did negotiate with us and our AGIs went decreased by way more than it would have if we had gone to court and fought it. So that was quite successful for you guys. Absolutely it was. I think um, so AGIs are above guideline increases, uh, as Elisa was saying, they they pertain to uh, the capital expenditures such as, yeah, the exterior major, major expenses, right? And there are only a few set things as far as the, the Residential Tenancies Act uh, stipulates. There are only certain things that landlords can claim as uh, reasoning or justification for applying for an above guideline rent increase. What what needs to be known is that the strategy that these larger landlords have been using is they've been deliberately neglecting repairs in order to make si- the situation unlivable for tenants on the inside of the building, while mm-hmm. at the same time applying for AGIs for things that they do to make the outside of the building more appealing to higher higher paying prospective tenants. That plays into those reno evictions too, right? That were happening pre-COVID, correct? 
like what you were just talking about, Aldecon, like the the uh, renovations, I think they're called, renovations, right? Where the landlords are like, oh, we need to renovate. So in order to renovate, we're going to, you know, uh, up increase the, the the value, the commodification of, 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 the, of the housing, and then evict people, finding really ridiculous things to evict people on so that they can um, up the rent of that unit to whatever they want, essentially, right? So that's been happening a lot too, right? Pre- pre-COVID. Yes. So on the topic of rent evictions, that's very true. And also demo evictions, which is kind of okay. a, a similar strategy is what landlords will do, like you, like you mentioned, is they will, uh, they will say that they need to undertake a renovation that is so large that the tenant cannot stay in the unit while the, while the job is being undertaken or a demo eviction. So the problem with rent evictions and demo evictions is Theoretically, under a renovation or a demo eviction, tenants are protected. They have what is called a right to first refusal, which means that once the renovation is complete, they have the legal option to go back into their unit at the same rent that they were paying before. And they have that option before the unit is offered to anyone else. However, since these renovations, and deliberately so by the landlords, take often years, you know, like two, three years to complete or that kind of thing. The land and the landlords definitely use that to their advantage, and the timelines for constructions the construction are deliberately long. What happens is they wait out the tenants, and the tenants they'll often find other accommodations and stuff like this. And even the way that it's written in the law makes it very difficult for the tenant to assert that right to first refusal. So the game plan is essentially to just kind of wait the tenant out so that there's no chance that they'll come back into their unit, but they are technically legally protected in getting the, getting back in the unit at the rent they were paying before so mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a really tough uh, it's a really tough thing to assert in terms of tenant rights just because of the vague language used in the rta exactly so there's lots of ways for landlords to kind of get around um housing rights essentially of tenants yes and also yeah. the way that the act is written puts all of the onus on the tenant to assert that right there's really exactly. nothing uh required of the landlord to seek out the tenant to ask them if they want to move back in or anything like that there's a lot of documentation that needs to be filed and with vulnerable tenants who you know may have particular trouble navigating that process that makes it very onerous wow. and i do want to add something back to when we were talking about the 2017 rent strike um, so definitely material gains. Uh, we a lot of buildings even had a zero percent rent above guideline rent increase, which was great. But also it's created the sense of community and neighbors standing up for each other as well. So it, it created that. And I still have neighbors that I'm helping from 2017 and they're helping me. So it just it was an incredible experience just to have amazing for together. So compared to the 2017 actions, what would you say are the challenges of doing this kind of organizing while the COVID-19 pandemic is going on? And how have you worked around those challenges? That's a great question. It's definitely been very challenging. So the first thing is, we couldn't do a lot of door knocking at the beginning. So it was a lot of sitting in the lobby and waiting for people to come down and approaching them there, but also all the PPE. So that takes out kind of the face-to-face interaction. And it did definitely did make it it did make it more difficult as well. And so we just set up a table in the lobby and had some flyers and had some information and, and created a list because the other problem is that things have changed so much since 2017. So a lot of tenants have moved out. There's a lot of turnover. So there's definitely some new faces, although we did have some of the old residents that we were already connected with. There's still a bunch of residents we needed to. So as they were coming in and out of the lobby, we just approached them there, got their contact information and set up an email and just uh, created a letter for the landlord together with our clear demands and our intent to go on rent strike as well. And everyone gave feedback and then we sent it in as well. So that's the major thing. But more recently, we are able to do some door knocking with masks and with protective gear as well. So it's getting a bit better. When you guys were out there in the lobby on a table handing out flyers and things like that, did you uh, get any kind of resistance from the building management or owners or anything like that? Our building was pretty good because I think of our history of organizing and the fact that there is a bit of fear amongst the landlords uh, based on what we were able to achieve last time. We also did it on weekends, mostly too, or evenings, so the landlord wasn't, or the management 
wasn't really coming in and out as well. So there was no real resistance. There was resistance with putting up things like flyers, taping them around. They would often get ripped off right after the posters went on. Because we that's actually another strategy too, which worked for other buildings to have signage that has a WhatsApp number so that residents and tenants can just uh, sign on to WhatsApp. And then that's how they connect as well. But all those posters got ripped down pretty quickly from our building, unfortunately. Mm. But no, no real resistance here. Do you, Elika, know of any resistance? Again, just to reiterate what you were saying um, about them kind of being hesitant to really use heavy-handed approaches with us because of the, the precedent that we established in 2017 as organized tenants. A good example of that is the fact that we have not paid rent for six months. and we Seven months, going on seven, since April. Oh, my bad. And so, uh, and we still have not received an N4 eviction notice. N4 in Ontario uh, refers to an eviction for non-payment of rent, which uh, I think is quite significant. They know that if they start serving N4s to all these Metcap tenants, it will galvanize us to a certain extent. And so they've been very hesitant and keeping their cards close to their vest right now. What we have received are these polite little reminders. (laughs) We very much appreciate your tenancy. However, you do owe us all balance <laughs> of thousands and thousands of dollars. What The first few that they, they put on our door and our neighbor's doors, actually, they whited out the word small in small balance. <laughs> which is- so, Alicon, can I ask you, you two a question? So knowing that you guys haven't paid rent in eight months, right? In seven months. Sorry, seven months. Do you have any idea in like in Parkdale, for instance, which is a neighborhood in Toronto, do you have any idea about how many people are not paying rent? Is there any sense of that? Or even if you could guesstimate? It's very challenging for a few reasons. A lot of these evictions, we think, will be very silent evictions because they're not necessarily connected to the movement but they haven't been able to pay rent because of COVID. They just don't have the money. And uh, some of them might be migrants or ESL or worried, worried for their status, worried about causing a scene. So they might not be reaching out to organize. So there's definitely a huge amount. We did a survey and it was about 10% of residents in the buildings we surveyed in Parkdale that have not been able to pay rent. And again, that's not including the ones that didn't let us know. Right. Another thing to remember is that, you know, when people think of evictions, they often think of the sheriff coming in and removing someone and changing the locks behind them. And while that does very much happen, and that is an extremely violent process, the vast majority of evictions are tenants voluntarily leaving because Mm -hmm. they did not pay rent. So there isn't even an application filed at the landlord and tenant board. It's just notifying them that they have not paid rent. And a lot of people don't really know their rights too around evictions as well, right? Like I, I, I see that quite a bit over the past few years doing housing work. A lot of landlords will just go and change the locks without any filing, legal filing to actually get a legal eviction. So many of these evictions can be illegal evictions as well with no recourse. Well, not a lot of recourse for those tenants to go and fight that, right? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. There's this assumption that all evictions are legit and above board and from our experience in organizing landlords understand that the law is very much in their favor even if they do things around the law and we've seen some very sketchy actions in terms of taking advantage of the vulnerabilities of certain tenants totally issuing bogus eviction notices putting all sorts of pressure we've heard of physical threats of violence we've heard of all sorts of things in parkdale Mm -hmm. especially where the pressure to get tenants out so that they can charge two and sometimes three times more rent to the next tenant coming in. The amount of money that stands to be made off of this process is astronomical. And so landlords are very much understanding of that situation. And they have done all sorts of shady things in order to Mm -hmm. get tenants out of their units. Well, and these landlords, going back to what you were saying too, they're, they're like a, a, an amalgamation of like all these little financial investment companies. So they have the financial means to go into the landlord and tenant board court and pay for their, um, they usually have hired hands that are on a regular full-time employment with their companies in order to, um, to fight against people trying to save their housing, right? So another point I wanted to make was most of the evictions in Canada are measured by how many evictions went to through the legal process. 
So going with what we were just saying, there's a lot of evictions that happen illegally or people just getting shut out illegally. So that creates a whole other category of people that aren't even being accounted for in, in some of these COVID numbers we mentioned earlier. So I just wanted to say that. And just to add to that, it's not only the process that might be incorrect, but also the fact that when a tenant receives these N4 letters, they get scared. Mm-hmm. Right? And they don't do it. They just leave. So it's all of that, too. You And landlords can be very coercive. And we actually had an example of that, just our neighbors um, in the next building over. They were getting very threatening letters to the landlord that you need to pay or you're going to be evicted. And that scares people, especially during a pandemic, too. So Of course. Right. So just to change gears a little bit about talking about the resistance work, the work that you guys have been doing on the ground, besides organizing tenants, is you have also been going out and actually stopping evictions from taking place. So could you talk a little bit about what you've done in that way or what you've seen done in that in, in that respect? Absolutely. So just uh, last week at uh, Goodwood Park uh, neighborhood in Toronto, there was an eviction that was defended by a group of tenants. So the group of tenants stood in front of the doors, did not let the sheriffs in. And it's important to remember that sheriffs are not police. They are unionized city workers. And so they there's not as much as they can do. And, you know, maybe there's some sympathy there being unionized workers themselves. But I don't, I'm not sure about that. I only hope for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were able to stop. And then the police were called. And which is quite upsetting because one of the demands for us for the mayor. So not only have we been making demands to landlords, we've been demanding the mayor to not use police when enforcing evictions. And he made it very clear that police wouldn't be used. But of course, the police were there to protect the Capitol, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, police showed up, but the tenants were able to stand their ground and the police eventually left. And it was a success story. Mm -hmm. And there was also an incident of a bunch of people blocking sheriff's cars from leaving. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. So that was at City Hall. So the sheriffs leave the parking lot in order to enforce evictions. And we were able to stand in the parking lot so the sheriffs can leave. So it was more of a symbolic thing because it was just for one day. But it was a clear message that tenants are going to fight for each other and they're going to stand up for each other. So that day, 40 evictions were not undertaken because we stood there. So you physically blocked the cars from leaving the parking lot. We physically blocked the sheriff's cars from leaving. Mm-hmm. So they didn't try. They actually didn't try. Right. Good work. Yeah, that was exciting to see when when that went on um, when I saw it on social media because unfortunately I, I couldn't make that action and I was like, yes, go guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. And another, um, just another positive development in Philadelphia, there was anti-eviction protesters as well who stood in front of the municipal court at the district attorney's office. So, so same kind of deal. They stood in front and actually, I think 17 got arrested as well. So mm-hmm. there's footage all over the internet of these high priced lawyers trying to get in to evict people and just a crowd of organized tenants just standing in their way. And the, the power of that kind of visual or visualization is, is quite something. I just wanted to say something real quick about, I mean, these these actions are largely symbolic and they've received some criticism for that fact. I mean, short of sort of actually blocking evictions, like the example that Eliza gave earlier at Goodwood Park, where the police were called in to enforce the evictions because the sheriffs were physically blocked from removing someone from their home, uh, an Indigenous woman. So that's one thing where blocking an actual eviction taking place from happening is a very objective material thing, whereas blocking, you know, sheriffs for one day or blocking high-priced lawyers from entering the courtroom for one or two days is more of a symbolic thing. I think that something should be said, though, about the advantage or the benefits, rather, of building that solidarity, building that consciousness. I think Mm -hmm. what we've seen with these largely symbolic actions is People generally, especially throughout COVID and the acute nature of the relationship between the landlord and the tenant and how that has been brought to the fore, has really developed an understanding, a general understanding about what that relationship actually entails. So if you'll you'll just bear with me here, 
I, I'd like to just kind of talk about what that looks like and what people are understanding that looks like and why that's beneficial. I think that people are starting to realize that it's when you when tenants call landlords parasites, it's not really it's not actually just like this this uh, meaningless term. It's actually it it makes sense in a very technical sense. Landlords, people are starting to realize that the relationship between landlords and tenants are very unique in a sense. They're they're different than than other relationships, such as between the employer and the employee, or you know other investments in in capitalist society. In that, landlords actually don't do anything. Their job is just to cash checks. There's this perception that landlords provide housing or that landlords, you know, maintain properties. And as we described earlier with these real estate investment trusts, it's actually not that at all. They hire these big management companies to do that job. That's the job of management companies. The landlord's job is just to make money. And so mm -hmm. to kind of bring that point home, I think it's good to really get at what a landlord is. And so as yes. Marxists, as Marxists understand that the value of a product is based on the labor that's put into it. And mm -hmm. what we need to understand about rent specifically is rent is just the result of the value of the product. It has nothing to do with what is put into it. And that might sound kind of like vague and whatever, but just look at the development of a society generally, like when a road is built, when a bridge is built, when the population grows, when the means of production on a given piece of land gets more complex or a new invention that makes the work more efficient is invented, that kind of thing. The landlord benefits without having contributed to it at all. All of these developments in society, the benefits accrue to the landlord without the landlord having to do anything except own land. And so I think that's really important to notice and take note of. Landlords will charge whatever they can get away with charging. It has nothing to do with the value that they're providing or, or the service that they're providing. When people start making more money, landlords will take more of that money. So it's very important to note that the landlord's rent has nothing to do with anything other than whatever they think that the person can give them. So that's, that's a key distinction. And that's the, those are the kinds of conversations that are being had right now. And I'm very encouraged by that. Mm -hmm. Oh, me too. And I think if I can just mention too, um, you know, I think it's really important that you made that distinction of the landlord relationship with the tenant. You know, at the end of the day, these are, these are homes and, and housing. So tenants view their apartment, that's their home, right? So there's so much more emotional and, and material investment for the tenant than the landlord. The landlord sits back, like you said, and collects the rent. And for them to have all of this exploitive power over, over tenants, especially during a pandemic is, is, is absolutely fucking disgusting. But I wanted to, to ask if, if you can. So we know that, you know, the commodification of housing is, is leading to this massive disaster. But what are some of the longer term goals around this rent strike? And I know some of the actions are symbolic, but they're also building education and awareness around these things too. So it, so it is good. There is a purpose for these symbolic actions, right? What would you say are some of the long-term goals for uh, for the rent strike and just housing in general? So long-term engagement of tenants and continuing to fight and protect each other. And that's something that we really recognized the importance of this time around, maintaining those connections that we made in 2017 for the strike. So yeah, I mean, like you were mentioning, profit is the number one incentive and that's why they leave so many units vacant so that they can profit when they sell the building. Um, and that's why people are being evicted and so that they can increase the rents to the market value. So yeah, st sticking together, standing, staying strong and yeah, on ongoing engagement. Ongoing organizing. Great. Thank you so much. Great. So moving on to a related topic is the encampments, which uh, for people who might not know, who are listening, there has been an increase in the number of unhoused people you know, all over, all over North America, but we can speak for Toronto. There have been more and more people who are living in these tents and campus camps um, on public grounds, mostly in parks and on the sides of highways and things like that. And uh, 
we're seeing a dramatic increase of these encampments under COVID. And Ali Khan has been working with the encampment support network, which has sprung up to support and help the people that are living in these encampments. So Ali Khan, could you talk a little bit about your work with the encampment support? How did it begin? And what are some of the things, what are some of the supports that it's providing? Sure. Yes, it's it. Well, I mean, it's this is not a new thing. Uh, I think it's just becoming more apparent under COVID because of the conditions. And I just like to note that unhoused people, at least in Toronto, but I'm pretty sure this is true across across so-called Canada, is that they're, they're disproportionately Black and Indigenous people. And just a statistic: forty uh, percent was the number I read that are Black compared to the general population, which hovers around, I think, 3%. So that's quite extreme. All sorts of factors come into play to uh, make sense of that number, including white supremacy, including settler society, and those kind of power dynamics that are at play. And I think it's very important to remind ourselves that many of these movements are very much intertwined. Many of these causes are very much intertwined and they're made apparent in the, the desperation and the, uh, the, ne the neglect that's caused by flawed policy. Going back to the encampments that have been popping up over the course of COVID-19, what the encampment support network has been trying to do is just literally provide care. There are many misperceptions about what the encampment support network is, and I think a lot of those misperceptions are deliberately misperceived in that many city agencies have approached us and asked us to operate in an official capacity as a way of shirking their own responsibilities, treating us like we're some kind of like NGO or that, you know, we have direct relationships with the uh, residents by forming these relationships over time. And they are trying to just kind of like speak to them through us. And we do not want to be necessary as a group of volunteers. We're doing this because it is necessary. And the reason it's necessary is because the city and other levels of government are simply not doing their job. We do not want to entrench ourselves as some kind of organization. Actually, our kind of line is that we're not an organization, we're just organized. And it's been very, very heartening. I've met some very, very beautiful people, beautiful in every possible way. I mean, I'm tearing up just now thinking about them. Not only, not, not only encampment residents that, that we've, we've developed relationships and custom relationships with, um, but also, you know, our, my, my fellow organizers and the encampment support network. What we try to do is not only provide material aid during this humanitarian crisis, and it is a very material humanitarian crisis in the encampments, but we really try to politicize what we're doing. An example of this is when we ask for donations from property owners and from the property owning class, we make sure to say that you need to write a letter or whatever it is to your representative or that kind of thing saying that I'm providing this donation, but I shouldn't have to. This is your job. Uh, mm -hmm. That's one of the things we do. A large part of what we do is political. It's not just about, you know, charity. We're, we're not a, about activism. This is not about activism at all. This is about filling a hole that should not have to be filled by random people that came together. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, Moxie, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I just wanted to touch on what Ali Khan said. You know, it's this isn't about charity or activism. This is literally like, and, and, I, and I'm glad you said that. Because I really believe like this kind of stuff is like nobody should be homeless. Nobody should be sleeping in tents in a country that goes down to minus 40 you know, in the winter. Nobody should have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from and that kind of thing. Like it's it, the responsibility to to look after each other is is really on all of us. And, and at one of the actions that happened this week around the encampment support, and one of the signs that I saw there is we need to look after each other. And it was like, yeah, <laughs> we do. So just just to sum up some of what you said. Yeah, could you talk about the action on Wednesday, on September 23rd? Yeah, sure. Uh, so what we what we did was um, we tried to set up a, a meal in March for housing. And it was quite a success in a lot of ways, I think. We were trying to draw attention to the issue that the housing crisis is, in fact, a real estate game. 
it's not a question of, you know, supply, we need to build more housing and that's the issue or whatever it is. Uh, it's actually a very, very disingenuous position to take that just more housing needs to be built. What we did was we marched from Moss Park, which is uh, a fairly uh, large encampment that's been there for quite a while. We marched just like a block away to uh, this row of built, it's actually a whole block that's owned by the We Charity, the Kielbergers own it. Um, not the not just the We Charity, but all their other different corporations, Me to We and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, and numbered whatever, but either way, the WE organization owns an entire city block just steps away from Moss Park where people are facing the very real prospect of freezing to death in a tent over the coming months. And here we are, we have these, this whole block of empty buildings. Yeah. I, I don't know if I need to go into length about, you know. How gross that is. <laughs> well, I mean, but also the WE charity is, is yeah. kind of holding in a sense and is leaving Canada after the scandal with, you know, the Trudeau's and like a conflict of interest around the, um, the jobs program. And they were given, they were given this contract. I think it was like a $900 million contract with no bidding process because the Kielbergers are personal friends of Trudeau. So we tried to draw attention in that way to have all these issues coalesce that not only the We charity, but this, this crisis, this speculative process or whatever is, being done across all across the all across so-called Canada all, and, es and especially in Toronto where the unhoused situation is very acute. And at this at this action too, there was a lot of like the folks who who organized this. They used art, they used uh, dance, they used music to sort of really generate a, a true sense of solidarity around like the stark realities of, of the current situation. Empty buildings sitting you know a couple blocks away from where people are, are camped out in tents so I, I thought that was really beautiful too like they had um indigenous dancers there they use these stencils i think eliza there was like you actually pointed them out to me uh the stencils with the scissors and what was the rep what did that represent again cut them out of the market yes yeah so it was a beautiful orange spray paint job dots and the symbol of scissors all around the block where the wee buildings were. And something I really liked about this action, I was at this as well, was that the people who are unhoused had an opportunity to speak. There was lots of speeches. They were able to give their story. And one thing that was really compelling is when one person said, one person was placed in a hotel and they came back to the encampment because they wanted to be seen. They didn't want to be hidden away anymore. And mm. that was very touching. Um, so yeah, it was just an opportunity finally for them to have a voice to a big crowd, which mm -hmm. I thought they did a great job organizing. It was so great. We had, you know, we projected onto the buildings, the encampment residents, whatever they wanted to say, we, we got consent, actually paid them for their expertise. And we compiled these videos, uh, video testimonials, I guess, and projected them onto the wee buildings. And, you Amazing. know, things like in between, like this should be housing, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was a very involved, type of thing. And as uh, as Eliza alluded to, we had like a large dotted line that we spray painted around the entire block with those scissor icons and that kind of thing. Cut this out of the market. Yeah, I thought it was really, really well done. Like in, in, in so many ways, it was a really beautiful um, action. Another thing I liked about this action was that it was very clear that we should expropriate these buildings and give them to the unhoused people. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's an interesting point that's coming up too, because some of the policy responses from government since COVID-19 around these encampments have been around sort of repurposing and to some extent expropriating hotels. And Kieran, I think you had a question around that. Yeah. So my question, I guess, is uh, can you talk about the resistance by some of these what we call NIMBY liberals, you know, Toronto, the city of Toronto has expropriated, for all intents and purposes, we'll use that term, has expropriated hotels that were empty and has housed some of the people in in those hotels, right? Shelter hotels, they're called. So we I we know we know there's some resistance from people who live in those neighborhoods where these hotels are, you know, as we call them, NIMBY liberals, not in my backyard. So uh, can you talk about that and what kind of resistance there has been and how how you've you know challenged that resistance? 
Yes, I mean, we've heard the same stereotypes from these NIMBY groups that have cropped up and, uh, you know, about, oh, you know, the needles lying around or whatever. My kids walking to school, I'm worried about children's safety. And then they, you know, make reference to how they care about unhoused people, but, 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 you know, and really it's, it's really unfortunate because I don't think that these are, you know, like quote unquote, evil people or bad people. I think this is the necessary result of flawed policy that divides people against each other. Some of their concerns are valid, but their solutions are not. For instance, their concerns about needles can be traced back to flawed policy. Again, the government does not want to provide safe supply in any of their, in any of their shelters. It's a, it's a, Real and that's safe supply for drug use specifically. Safe supply for drug use, even even just you know safe injection sites, tends to be a really controversial, mm-hmm. uh, really controversial thing. And when you don't have safe supply, and you have people that are in shelter hotels that are that have issues with addiction, and and many of these sh- shelter hotels, by the way, will evict people in shelter hotels and put them back on the street if they're caught using. They have no option but to use outside of the hotel. And by the way, these hotels are not hotels like the Ritz-Carlton or anything like that. You know, these are hollowed out buildings that have been turned into like these, what we call soft institutions. It's not what you think of when you think of a hotel, okay? There are really, really big rules uh, that come with the the price of eviction, throwing people back on the street if they're caught using. So they end up going and using elsewhere and then they get criminalized when they, they use elsewhere. And it's really just a question of providing something simple, like providing safe supply or providing a safe space to use. And that's not being done. And mm-hmm. so then the city and representatives of city council will grandstand by saying, oh yeah, you know, the NIMBYs should be more considerate. And, you know, I used to think like that, but this and that or whatever, but it's these city councilors that have caused NIMBYism. Mm-hmm. their flawed policies and so i don't i don't think that they're being sincere when they when they well and i think a lot of times like going back to you know the the start of the the big crisis in toronto being you know like i mentioned before the epicenter of, of homelessness in canada is toronto it's the largest city in canada so you know the homelessness since the 80s has been just skyrocketing and a lot of those people that are um, at risk of homelessness or living in highly precarious housing or, or substandard housing are in fact people who need more supportive housing around them so more housing supports like access to uh, harm reduction workers like access to mental health workers so it is about a full circle holistic policy framework to prevent uh, homelessness which the government has failed repeatedly to do and and a lot of the shelters in toronto are also very much centered in downtown uh, areas, right? So they haven't made space to not ghettoize people who need to access emergency shelters. So once you start to spread out during a pandemic, because social distancing is needed and because shelter capacity is like always at a 98, 99% capacity rate for the last five years, um, you know, once you, you start to spread out people who are homeless and in need of support, you know, for their uh, addictions and mental health, for instance, that's when the nimbyism really starts to get like intense, right? Because they're like, this has never happened in my neighborhood and you're going to devalue my property. And it always goes back to that as being a, one of their fundamental arguments, the devaluation of their property for resale. So it ties in completely full circle right back to the commodification of housing as a general, you know, foundation of why this bullshit exists, right? Yeah, for sure. And Something to really, really consider, I think, is, and I didn't even know this until, you know, a few weeks ago, is that there have been more overdose deaths than COVID deaths, okay? That's quite astounding, I would say. But going back to the, the quote-unquote shelter hotels and how you were saying, Moxie, about, you know, like spreading them around outside of the core, the downtown core, that's also a big issue too, because the city says, "Oh yeah, you know, we're offering these shelter hotels, you know, and they and they're just turned down." And the perception from home homeowners that live in the surrounding areas of the encampments is that 
these encampment residents just don't know what good, what's good for them. They're just refusing these offers because they are trying to be a nuisance or whatever the case may be. But there are very real reasons why people are turning down spaces at shelter hotels. They're far away from their services, that isolation. they need isolation from their communities. And often, you know, they're put in a room and they're not even allowed to visit other floors. Um, so when, when they're using, they have to use alone in their own room and they can't rely on who they usually rely on their community members to have their backs to, you know, like, uh, and th these are some of the causes of we've seen overdose deaths in shelter hotels simply because people are isolated in their own rooms. They have really, really strict curfews that they have to ad adhere to. And if they don't, then they get kicked out. Like the city's being extremely dishonest about what is actually being offered. And not to mention, they're not offering it to everybody. And they've actually just stopped offering it at all because there's actually no space in the shelter system right now at all. So what the city is saying to the public and what is act what the encampment support network is seeing on the ground is completely night and day. Their goal is to just get rid of the, uh, the encampments. And some of the most progressive counselors are refusing to even provide the material aid that we're saying that they should be providing. We shouldn't have to, you know, fundraise to provide water and, and fire safety and this kind of thing and tents and sleeping bags and whatnot. We shouldn't have to do that. They're saying that we refuse to provide the, this very basic material aid because we don't want to entrench the encampments. And I find that absolutely disgusting for them to have that mentality. And again, these are the most progressive, quote unquote, progressive city councillors. It is. The Encampment Support Network just held a winter clothing drive. And in fact, there were so many clothing that they shut down before they even had to because there were so many donations that came in, right? So what are some of the ways that uh, the community, the larger community, you know, of other people in Toronto have, have stepped up to help out? And what are some of the most successful campaigns of for like fundraising for or, or raising um, for clothing and, and support for in the encampment for the people in the encampments that have worked the best. So what would you say have been some of the most effective ways to help? Well, again, we really try to politicize donations. So in doing that, I think people are starting to understand that their donations aren't about charity. It, it's actually, you know, and to be perfectly frank, like while we very much appreciate the donations of, rich people giving their overbought items to the encampment support network, they'll then turn around and vote for lower property taxes. So I think that being very deliberate about what we're doing when we, when we start these fundraising campaigns and the larger picture is extremely important. We've got a great team and it's growing. Basically think about other people organizing in other cities and what they might be able to learn from the Encampment Support Network's work. Again, I think that we're not trying to have this duplicated anywhere. We don't want to entrench ourselves as some template. Uh, this, is, this is not something we want to be doing. We don't want to have to be doing this. So... Well, I know, but there are encampments in other cities. There are tents that are, you know, people are being evicted. So if there are people listening in other cities where this is happening and they want to be part of something, how can they help? That's my, that's the whole point. Get together with your neighbors. Talk, talk to your neighbors and figure it out. Figure out how to provide this material aid while also being very intentional that about the fact that you do not want to be obligated to provide this aid. I mean, it's, great the fundraising efforts that we've done and stuff like this but i think the key piece here is really really politicizing what we're doing mm -hmm. just like having um you know moratoriums on evictions that's not good enough we need we need to make sure that nobody gets evicted period right not just a moratorium on it and we also need to make sure that public housing is something that immediately starts to happen. We have to take back these private commodification assets like housing and put them back into public hands, right? And make it, make it, a, a, you know, housing as a human right really does need to happen. Right now, I was just reading something, over 75% of Canadians are, like, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic started, over 75% of Canadians are very much interested in ensuring that public housing happens in Canada. That's great. So deeply, truly affordable housing for people that is geared to their income. So if they do lose their job, 
their rent is then reduced and geared to their income. That's what we need too, right? Wouldn't you say that, um, uh, Aliza, Alicon? Yes, that's exactly what we need. We need to ensure that everyone has a house and everyone is treated with dignity. It's, it's yeah. so sad what we see, you know, like when, when I go and I see families with um, major pest issues, getting rid of their beds all the time, like how are they supposed to do their day-to-day things? How are they supposed to work? How are they supposed to do anything when they don't even have that basic need met in a rich country like ours? It's shameful. It and is. just as an example of that, you know, like some of the housing that's being offered to very, very few people, and like I said, not anymore, but in earlier stages, is infested with roaches and, and rats and stuff like this. And people need to be able to convince the courts to allow allow them to see their kids. So if you know, you're putting people in, in housing that's actually not suitable according to the courts, how are they supposed to start their life back up again? You know? And to what you were saying earlier, Moxie, about you know, social housing, I think it's very, very key for us to be very specific about what we mean by public, publicly owned housing, because what the city and other jurisdictions are doing is they're kind of trying to play this game where it's like, okay, yeah, we'll buy this land or whatever, or instead of expropriation, we'll, we'll enact a, a, a law that says we have right to first refusal, which isn't, which isn't expropriation. It's really just, you know, identifying buildings that could come on the market. And then the city gets the option of matching the first bid on that property. But even when they when they do acquire properties, they insist on transferring ownership to like NG, some NGO to manage it yeah. because they're concerned about legal liability and that kind of thing. So we have to be very, very specific about what we're asking for. And, and you know, the, the reason why all of these things are done, as we know, is the sacrosanct nature of the edifice of private property and how that must be protected at all costs. You know, once you start expropriating and using heavy handed tactics, then investors start to get a bit uh, of a chill. And that is the most important thing here in so-called Canada and in capitalist or bourgeois society is that the, the edifice of private property must be protected at all costs. Yeah. So what are some very realistic asks for like immediate action around uh, encampment support? Like we did mention housing, public housing. But is there something else that you want to add that that is very realistic and tangible for all of us to be able to support in that ask? We're in a bit of a bind because on one hand, we don't want encampments to exist. We want people to have permanent housing, permanent housing. Like that's it, you know, Mm -hmm. rent geared to income is, is great and stuff like that. But without the guarantee that they're not going to be evicted or kicked out of their homes, it really doesn't mean anything. Right. However, since the governments are not acting in good faith, and that's been very made very clear by their lack of a plan, they just put out a 24-month plan that barely even mentions the encampments. Some of our key asks involve very basic things like stop the police violence at the encampment, stop the encampment evictions, provide basic necessities like fire safety over the winter so people don't freeze to death or burn to death. You know, we've seen tents burn down because there just isn't the, the proper fire safety. You know, we've been providing fire extinguishers that we fundraise for amongst other things and stuff like that. But we need actual action to protect encampment residents rather than just ignoring it like it isn't there. Yes. Okay. So basically harm reduction around, uh, you know, the encampments around like fire safety, for instance, and making sure that they're not criminalized for, for not having a house and wanting a community, right? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just so egregious that the city would, on one hand, not offer any options. And then on the other hand, essentially violently using the police, violently just shuffling people around the city so that mm-hmm. you know, smaller encampments crop up and they're even more vulnerable to police violence. We've seen some very scary stuff where police will come in the middle of the night and slice people's tents. Like they'll just destroy people's homes. And, you know, for feminized uh, encampment residents, that's even more scary. And just, Feminized encampment residents also have to deal with an added level of uh, oppression because of patriarchy, right? So not to, not to you know, speak poorly of or, or add to any kind of stereotypes of encampments being dangerous places or that kind of thing. But, I mean, feminized residents of encampments are unhoused feminized people. Mm-hmm. Uh, will face a certain level of violence that male passing residents will not face. And especially because that whole community is put into a uh, situation of desperation. So that effect of patriarchy is even more acute. So 
those kinds of things. And I, I just wanted to quickly add to the point I was making earlier is that it's very, very clear that homelessness could literally be ended overnight. It, that's, the space is there. there. There are vacant buildings across the city, across the country. Like, they're everywhere. The only reason why homelessness is not ended today is because it would, it would put a chill on investors. And that's mm-hmm. just unacceptable. Because profits are more valued than people. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm glad you added that. Thank you so much for that, Ali Khan. Before we wrap up, so are there some other places around the world that you can think of that have done anything that might be seen as successes in, in terms of uh, caring for unhoused people or uh, stopping evictions and things like that? Well, I know that uh, in Venezuela, they can't, uh, they canceled rent altogether. The Maduro administration canceled rent altogether. You know, these are very, very possible things. It's, it's not possible for the reasons we described because we just have different priorities in our society. But even if you were to look at things that perceivably Toronto could do, look at a city like uh, Barcelona, where I think, I think it's Barcelona, where they, what they've done is any vacant properties must be expropriated after a year, I think, of being vacant. So it puts this obligation on, on the landlords to actually, you know, uh, it house just, people. yeah, house people. It disincentivizes, you know, spe- speculation uh, or speculative activity. And just to bring this to our neighborhood, Timber Creek has 150 vacant units right now sitting there out of 700. Oh my God. Down the street. Why aren't we taking those over and filling them with these people that are literally beside them in tents? No kidding. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. All right. So is there anything you want to add that, you, you know, you want us to take away from this uh, conversation? Either of you, Aliza or Ali Khan? Get organized. Talk to your neighbors. Talk to your coworkers. It's not hard. Mm-hmm. You know, I started organizing because I was encouraged by other organizers to do so. Uh, yeah. So anyone can do it. It's literally just starting conversations. Just get yeah. get involved. And for me, I would say recognize who landlords are, what their purpose is, and who they're serving. Recognize how the media is uh, skewing things for us to perceive these landlords as innocent and mom and pops and just trying to get by. So know that they're they're corporate landlords. Keep that in mind. The stereotype of the mom and pop landlord is pretty uh, exaggerated, right, in the media, from what I know. It's less than 3% across Canada. Less than 3%. Yeah. And that's by mom and pop specifically. I mean, people who rent out their basement and they don't own other investment property or that kind of thing they're renting out mm-hmm. one unit within the structure that they also live in that's a very very low percentage exactly i believe it's, I believe it's actually i believe it's actually five percent you know if i can you guys i think i would like to add to just from um more of like a an educational sort of resource perspective because uh, i agree with with everything that you you've said i i would like to add that People can start to get connected with uh, some really good overviews about the the landlord and tenant situations and, and laws and legislation, that sort of thing, at least in Canada, but in particular in Toronto, if you are listening from Toronto. ACTO, it's A-C-T-O. They have a lot of information. They're also a great support for tenants. Parkdale Organize, which you guys are, are connected with as well. They're a great resource. They're, they're very, very active and good advocates for tenants. There's also CIRA, which is a Center for Equality, Rights and Accommodation. They're an excellent resource as well. And ACORN. ACORN, you know, They've done some some fairly decent work too uh, during COVID as well. So um, just just for some resources, if people want to kind of get uh, go down the rabbit hole of <laughs> of other places, they you can start there. So thank you so much for for this discussion. Can I just say thank one thing finally? If if you are facing an eviction and you don't know what to do, uh, keep your rent is another really good resource for you. And you can even sign up and say where you're at, because at the end of the day, we're going to be defending each other. The tenants are going to have their facts for each other. So we're the only ones we can trust. So please contact someone. You're not alone. There's a lot of evictions that are going to be happening. And make sure you make that connection. 
Mm-hmm. That's keep your rent. That is the organization is keep your rent. Yeah. That's- keep your rent. Okay. And I think they actually have organizing tools. If you want to organize in your, in your apartment building, don't they? Thank you. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I want to say thank you to our guests, Aliza Kassam and Ali Khan Pabani. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for all of your experience and all of your work that you're doing and, and the organizing work that you're doing. I'm sure you already know, but it's it's the most important thing that we can do in this uh, in this climate, in this, uh, especially during the pandemic, but just in general, you guys work very hard. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, you guys. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Life Podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already done so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Red Life Podcast. And please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. <laughs>